Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Oh, I'm back to Heard Tell and Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we do what we try to do here. Turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the things that matter, discern the times we live in, skip all the stuff that doesn't, skip the caterwaul and skip the holler and talk, not yelling concern the times we live in so we can understand what's going on around us. You may have heard tell that there's a lot of talk about ethics in Congress. Now, we talk about government accountability all the time here, and ethics in Congress is one of those things. It's kind of like, you know, intelligence services, and you joke about how intelligence they really are. But ethics in Congress is important. It's also something that's vastly missing. We have things like the George Santos situation where he's now not only going to be seated and not only are they not going to kick him out of Congress, but they're going to give him committee assignments. Heck of a job, Kevin McCarthy, holding the line on that one. Nonetheless, all these things have brought up that the new rules package that the GOP Congress has brought in has changes to how they investigate ethics. And of course, things like Santos are just the glaring things, but there's multiple investigations and the multiple congressional members at any given time, both parties and the party in charge, of course, has a say in who sits on those committees and those things. Let's go to Punchbowl News for a minute, because this is important to kind of hash out. I want to talk about how ethics investigations are laundered. No, I don't mean air and dirty laundry, although we could probably use some of that in Washington. I'm talking about like money laundering. You know, you take dirty money, you run it through a front business or two or three, and you pass it through a couple accounts, and eventually it's clean, as in it's harder to trace where the original problem was, even though it's still dirty money. Ethics complaints in Congress get laundered. Let's go through how this works. Uh, we're going to rely on our friends over at Punchbowl News. By the way, if you don't sign up for their free newsletter on congressional goings-on, you're missing out. You need to do so. It's free on their Substack. We'll link to this. Um, Punchbowl News, this particular piece was written by John Breshnian. I hope I'm saying that right. But um, the rules package recently approved by the House party on a party line vote essentially puts the OCE, that's the Office of Congressional Ethics, the independent ethics watchdog on hold, at least until House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries can name two new Democratic board members, which we'll get to in just a second, two, possibly three board members, depending on who you ask. And the House Republicans include a provision that impacts the OCE staff, although there's confusion on that too. And here's the explainer on it. The rule package imposes term limits on all those OCE board members, three from each party plus an alternate. Under the new restriction, board members can only serve for two Congresses. That Remember, those are only two-year terms, so four years totally. This is the same time limit OCE board members faced when the office was first created in 2008. However, only Democratic board members are impacted. Whether it's two or all three Democrats on the board is a little hazy. 
Um, but all this matters because the OCE rule changes that the Republicans instituted. The GOP package states, and this is a direct quote from the rules package, the provision regarding appointment and compensation of staff shall be required an affirmative vote of at least four members of the board, not later than 30 calendar days after the date of the adoption of this resolution. That means, continuing to read from Punchbowl News here, there has to be at least one Democratic board member in place, along with the three GOP board members, to appoint staff. If there's no staff, the OCE cannot function. And again, as with the board member provision, there's some question whether this affects only new or all the OCE staffers. Government watchdog groups have slammed the Republicans for these moves, accusing them of gutting the OCE, but that's not quite true. Number one, OCE doesn't have a lot of friends in the House GOP leadership. Two, Republicans have tried to get rid of the OCE entirely before, so you can understand why the watchdog groups think that, but here's the news. Again, Punchbowl News reporting here. Jeffries plans to name his OCE board pick in time to meet the 30-day deadline. The House voted on the rules package on January 9, meaning De Jeffries has until early February to announce his picks. There are some restrictions on OCE board members. They can't have been lobbyists for at least a year, and they can't have run for several years after leaving OCE or engaged in political activities while serving. These rules normally make it difficult to find board members, yet this controversy has Democrats looking to move quickly. But let's talk about ethics committee. Now, this is not the OCE. This is the actual ethics committee. Another change that Republicans implemented that allows anyone to file a complaint with the ethics panel. Up until now, only lawmakers were able to file complaints. The public could now theoretically file with OCE, but not with the ethics committee. This cuts both ways. The knock on the OCE, which lacks subpoena authority or the ability to sanction members, is that it's a, quote, complaint factory, has grown up around it. Outside groups from both parties file a complaint, leak it to the press. The OCE calls for an investigation, as they are bound to do, and then the Ethics Committee finds no major violation. This results in a bad headline, more than real checks on bad behavior, per, per the OCE critics. The Ethics Committee, though, doesn't have to disclose that it's received a complaint, meaning everything the secretive panel does disappears into a black hole. The OCE reports, on the other hand, eventually come out if they're sent on to the Ethics Committee. That's from Punchbowl News. Why do I call that ethics laundering, like money laundering? Because the House has a lot of say over how they investigate themselves. Things that they want memory hold get memory hold, and here's part of the process they have to do it. Now, controlling that process is what they're actually arguing about here. Who controls what and how? Obviously, the folks in power don't want heavy oversight. The folks out of power want a lot of oversight because they can use that not only to get the people in power held accountable, but can use it when they want to try to take power in the next election. You see how this becomes a big ball in a hurry. Ethics complaints go in. Some are unfounded and used to leak, like they said. And the ones that really have some important stuff in it tend to disappear if the member has enough clout to make it happen. This is why you only usually see people, and this is, goes back to this George Santos situation. He's only gonna get kicked out of Congress if the GOP leadership has an incentive to do so. Let's take another person, Madison Cawthorn. Now, he didn't get run out of Congress, but he did get code-redded. I use that term quite a bit lately. What code-redded means, of course, it comes from a few good men. Somebody orders a code-red when they want to get rid of somebody or teach somebody a lesson. Okay, In this case, with Madison Cawthorn, it was Tom Tillis, the senator from North Carolina, who had a personal beef on a couple levels and was just generally offended by the very existence of Madison Cawthorn and all his hot mess. He ran a code red. 
they went and got all the oppo research they dug up all the dirt and they just kept leaking it in the press until he was effectively politically dead killed his re-election campaign he lost in his primary and he scurried out of congress without having really accomplished anything other than embarrassing himself and our country for having held office in the first place that's a code red they ran him out they just stacked up the bad information until he had to go away that's about the only way you get rid of a congressperson is somebody powerful enough that doesn't want him gets rid of him or there's a big political incentive or there's a big public outcry so that's how stuff actually gets done they can use the ethics committee and they can use the oce to do some of that but mostly if they got enough friends and they got enough stroke it goes to these committees and disappears we've seen this from minor things like campaign finances and writing off things you shouldn't write off and things like that to really serious stuff don't forget it wasn't that long ago we had quite a tussle in the congress over sexual harassment and worse allegations about how certain members were treating people and staff and even other members this is serious stuff that congress does not take seriously because we do not have a serious congress especially this congress which looks like it's going to be an absolute utter circus so yes ethics are important but we're all adults here the people that are in charge of watching their own ethics are going to wash and launder them to make sure they look as good as possible unless there's some real incentive it's on us the people to make sure they have an incentive to not do nonsense like this the rules package is an archaic thing to argue over with and most of the general public doesn't care doesn't know how it works and even if you explained it to them probably still wouldn't care very much but we should and in a bigger picture we should pay attention to who wants to tinker with the rules because it tells you a lot about how they plan on exerting their power when our democrat friends get in charge next time we need to hold the same standard to them ethics are important our congress doesn't have them and if we don't hold them accountable that's mostly our fault more heard tell right after this spring nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress that's what life's all about in your career relationships and your finances let's talk about that last one with the chime secured credit builder visa credit card it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest so your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory and if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, old favorite, hadn't been here for a while. He's been busy. He's going to tell us why he's been busy with here in just a second. Our friends from Consumer Choice Center. He's also got his own podcasting and radio gigs. David Clement is back after too long of an absence, my friend. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. Thank you for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. Okay, here's an interesting one. We've been talking about housing a lot 
Uh, we've been talking about it with our UK friends where it's really getting hairy over there. We've been talking about it here in America where it's not quite to that level, but it's kind of heading that way. Canada has been having all sorts of housing issues, especially places like Toronto, Vancouver, mm -hmm. the major cities. It's which is really funny because, you know, I'm a nerd. I watch HGTVs. A lot of those HGTV house shows started in Canada and now they got to film them in Raleigh because, you know, people's like, why is this house a million dollars? Yep. It's been a problem up there. You've written about it for years that I've known you. You've got policy answers on this, but now you got kind of a personal perspective on this, too, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. So we've spent. Um, we've spent the, the better part of the last three months looking at houses. Um, in what you would consider the the GTA or like the outskirts, the outer outskirts of the GTA. Um, and for a long time, uh, this has been a really uncomfortable housing market price-wise, um, where it is just incredibly difficult um, for a variety of reasons to, to get into the housing market. So one, prices are through the roof. Um, then just as, as a, a funny kind of story, um, if you are a Jeopardy fan, uh, Matea Roach, uh, Canadian who, who went on a really, uh, she, I think it would be best described as a heater, uh, on Jeopardy, um, won about $560,000, um, on her run in Jeopardy. And someone asked her, oh, well, what are you going to do with the, the prize, the prize money, because that should be like life changing, um, life changing money. And uh, <laughs> she said, "Well, that'll that'll be a good down payment on a house in Toronto." Um, and the whoever it was who was interviewing uh, her had asked or had said, "Wait, a down payment? That's not the whole thing." Um, and no, it is not. The average home price at the time was. Uh, like the median house was something like 1.15 million, 1.2 million. Um, so really high prices. There are uh, laws in place um, for the deposit. Uh, and so as soon as you get over a million dollars, you have to put 20% down. Um, so you have to have 200 grand um, liquid <laughs> to put down, um, which not many young people have. Um, that it, That's like, decades worth of, of savings for um your kind of ordinary millennial who's doing well for themselves who's kind of cost and budget conscious um so it's it, it's very difficult um now some of those prices have come down recently we're seeing a bit of a crunch with rising interest rates right now i think a lot of people who were speculating on real estate who bought let's say from 2020 to six months ago uh, are feeling the pinch because the mortgage payments uh, with the rising rates don't match what you can get for rent. Um, so the idea that you could, if you can't sell a home, you can just rent it. You're you're going to eat the loss. And so we're seeing a lot of homes come come on the market um, where homes have sat empty for let's say three four months, and that is just too much of a burn rate for a lot of people to stomach. And so. Houses are starting to go back down. They're dipping below the million-dollar mark. Uh, doesn't mean that's very. It's that much more affordable for buyers because you're. It's harder to qualify for a mortgage these days than it was two years ago, um, with rates being what they are. But 
we're starting to see some type of adjustment. Um, it's not any type of collapse, I would call it, but we are seeing some sort of price adjustment, um, but not not much of an adjustment in terms of overall affordability, unfortunately. Yeah, David Clement joining us. Here's the thing. Um, we all talk policy stuff. We're pundits. This is what we do. We give ideas mm -hmm. and throw stuff out there. Then when you got to go through it yourself, it kind of changes your perspective a little bit. Yep. Talk about that because when you actually have to do it, here's the disconnect. And here's something I work really hard on because it's easy to just sit here and say stuff into the microphone, into the camera, or write a piece and fire it off and get mm -hmm. it published somewhere. That's one thing. There's a real disconnect between the pundit sphere and the talking heads, and especially the policy sphere, which is its own separate thing where people just sit yep. and do the think tank thing. And I'm not knocking them. That's, that's what they do. No, nope. there's a big disconnect between that and the average person that they're supposed to be reaching. There's a communication gap. There's, dare I say, sometimes an empathy gap of like, mm -hmm. hey, this stuff is hard to implement. And even the best ideas implemented wrongly can be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Talk about that part of it, because like you've been talking about housing since I've met you a couple of years ago. Now yep. you went through the process. It should refine how you think about an issue like this, right? Yeah. So I think the biggest takeaway for me is, so let's say we saw 30 houses. I would say that 20 of them were vacant. Um, so that suggests to you that they were, their investment properties. They're not, primarily speaking, they're not someone's primary residence that they're moving out of. Um, so the folks on the left kind of see that as the boogeyman. Like that's the reason why housing is so expensive um ultimately i think i downplayed the extent to which um people are speculating on real estate um so i was probably wrong in terms of how large that sec section of the market is um but what's funny is i still think that my policy prescription is is accurate to try and solve it um, now, some of that is is correcting for itself with rising rates, um, but the policy prescription I've always said because people will complain they'll be like, oh, on the right they'll the boogeyman is foreign buyers, right? We don't want foreign buyers. We have to ban foreign buyers. Um, on the left, it's banning, let's say, a second property purchases or third wherever you draw the line. Um, but realistically, I think the answer, if you want to see if those people are in air quotes bad, and I don't think they're necessarily bad, um, they're responding to incentives. If you want to stick it to them, the best way to stick it to them is to increase the housing supply and create a lot more competition um, in what's on offer in the market. And we're starting to see a lot more uh, effort at the provincial level on that. Uh, the, the, Premier of Ontario, Ontario's governor for uh, American listeners is wanting to build over a million new homes um, to try and alleviate some of this crunch. I think that's really the best way to um, to stick it to investors or to foreign buyers um, is is to create competition where you don't see that asset inflation of 15, 20 percent per year. I mean, so a single-family home in the greater Toronto area throughout the pandemic outperformed and all of the major um, hedge funds on Wall Street in terms of returns. Um, that is completely unsustainable. 
Uh, and the best way to counter that is to just increase supply so that you have more options for people looking to enter the market, but more importantly, you have more options across the spectrum for people entering the market. So if I think back to my sister's generation, she's 10 years older than me. They had the opportunity to buy something modest as their first home, live there for five or so years, have a child, kind of outgrow that house and use the equity to then move up the housing ladder. That doesn't exist at all anymore. Um, if you're a millennial and you have kids, it's essentially you're renting in that type of modest home. You're then outgrowing it and you're taking a big leap to that kind of more forever home, the type of house you could live in um, for, for, let's say, 20, 25 years. Um, so that's the uncomfortable situation a lot of folks like myself are dealing with right now is being able to make that leap, which is very tough. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, the best way to counter any of the boogeymen out there is to just increase supply and do so in a meaningful way, um, which we are starting to see some some yimby yes in my backyard pressure um, with the decision makers in, uh, in in the provinces who are ultimately the the final say on on a lot of the, the provinces and the municipalities are the final say on uh, on housing. joining us you just touched on it and i don't want to gloss over it because it's the part of the housing thing people don't want to talk about equity is wealth and it's mm -hmm. generational wealth for a lot of folks you know mm -hmm. they inherit a property or they inherit the, that's not happening that chain has been broken like you just talked about but that's the gap is getting into the first home because once you have the first home then you have equity to maybe get another home or to renovate the one you're in or whatever the case may be getting that gap in and if you have policies like bad mortgages or high risk mortgages, which makes the problem even worse, mm -hmm. that furthers that gap. And it also hurts the greater market. That's the entry point of the, all the problems right here is getting those first time homeowners into a home in an affordable way. That's really the crux of this whole mess. That's where all the policy stuff, that's the rubber meeting the road, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're going to start to see over the course of 2023, is a lot of the first time home buyers who bought on a variable rate mortgage during the pandemic really feel the pinch. Um, and so you're at, like I said, your average home, let's say, and this is your, your median home, um, like your average, uh, average house um, in the GTA, let's say a million dollars. Um, your mortgage rate from, let's say you got it at the lowest variable would have been one point six to two point one percent you're now looking at four point eight to five point six percent um incomes have not gone up have not doubled <laughs> in that time period um cost of living has gone up in terms of the inflationary pressure on everything else groceries etc um so i think you're going to see a lot of those buyers reevaluate who bought what we'll now look at we'll look back at as the top 
they bought the, at the top at the cheapest they could afford uh, interest rate wise at the top and they're going to be either stuck trying to refinance fixed at a much higher rate um, to try and lock something in that's somewhat affordable or they're just going to feel the feel the pain for a long time um, because as a lot of people don't realize that like interest rates now are nearing the historical average this is like normal interest rates not they, they feel uh, exponentially high um, but in the fullness of time they're actually about average and so the people who are banking on interest rates to go back down to um, to low twos high ones I think are dreaming and they're going to really feel it if they don't plan financially for for that reality yeah David Clement joining us that's a good point you bring up about the interest rates because that's been making headlines for folks that aren't following Canada politics and the economy, which is not most of the world and probably about half of actual Canadians. What's kind of the headlines that folks should actually be paying attention to? You just mentioned it, the, the interest rates are up, but if you look over them historically, they're not, you know, outrageously up. It's just comparatively up. Mm -hmm. There's a talk that the recession now may be deeper than they thought in Canada. The Bank of Canada has had some headlines and some press. The Trudeau government has obviously been talking a lot, uh, quite frankly, kind of scattershot about different things, but they're talking about this. What's the outside observer that hasn't been keeping up with Canada? What should they be paying attention to that's been happening in the last few months that's really going to be the top line item going through 2023, do you think? Yeah, I, 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 not to be too much of a, a doomsdayer, but I think that a recession is imminent. Um, often we'll hear from the federal government about job growth, but they'll 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 very conveniently ignore where that job growth is. And so, if you announce that we've overshot our job growth target, that's great. However, if 60 70 80 percent of that job growth is in the public service that is not positive um not necessarily because we don't need those jobs maybe we do need them um but that is not the same as private job growth um and and wealth generation in, in the private sphere because ultimately those salaries and those jobs are paid by taxpayers in order to pay those you either run higher deficits um which furthers the inflation problem, or you're increasing taxes at a time when people are already stretched um, on their mortgage payments, on their grocery bills, on their gas taxes, you name it. So keep an eye, I would say, uh, be skeptical of, of when some of these job figures come out in terms of where the jobs are, that's an important one. Um, I would say that inflation is probably going to linger for longer than a lot of people um, first argued. Uh, I mean, we saw the same thing with the Biden administration saying that infl this inflation is transitory. It's because of Putin. It's because of supply chains, et cetera. Some of that was, of course, true at the time, but it is not tra transitory. This is a monetary phenomenon, which it almost always is. Um, so it's going to linger for a while. Um, and unaffordability is, is going to become more of a problem and a, a political talking point moving forward. Um, th that would be my, my kind of two big takeaways on what's next. Um, and then the real question is, do the provinces have the guts 
to force cities to build more homes because that's the 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 back and forth right now is the province says we want to do x but local city councilors are the decision makers um, and you have to create incentives or penalties for municipalities who do build or don't want to build um, and the ford government in ontario has somewhat done that they've said you can't uh development charges on new builds there's a cap you can only charge so much um and because of what, what municipalities were doing and we noticed this looking at the property taxes of older homes versus newer homes even though they were the same price um would be double and so municipalities are offloading a lot of the infrastructure tax burden uh onto new builds where your property taxes will be double from the get-go um, in order to try and prevent having to raise property taxes on existing residents and that's creating really weird um, mismatch where like so much as crossing one road can make a difference property tax wise although both houses are nine hundred thousand or a million or 1.1 million one will have a sixty five hundred dollar a year municipal tax bill the other will have a $3,500 a year municipal tax bill. Um, so we're going to see some some pressure from provinces to really force cities to get their act together. Uh, and then what happens from that is the big question. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Main. Church and Main is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. David Clement joining us. Is that 
you just kind of touched on it is the provinces and the municipalities and the big cities and the governments is that the primary dynamic to keep an eye on right now because it feels like especially the last since the end of the covid restrictions let's just go back that far mm-hmm. although they, this is lingering stuff that's always been there to some level is that the dynamic to really pay attention to because it does seem like that's been elevated quite a bit at least in the last year or so both politically and culturally yeah that is the that is the dynamic to look at because the federal government in my opinion is just tinkering at the margins um they don't necessarily have a role to play it's not technically in their jurisdiction to handle much of housing but there's a lot that the federal government now does that isn't in their jurisdiction at all and yet they do do it anyway um like the trudeau government's dental care announcement that is not in the federal government's purview at all um same with their child care announcement completely outside of the realm of what the federal government is supposed to do and yet they're still doing it and so if we've crossed that bridge i don't see any justification for not adding housing targets into it and i've long argued that if the trudeau government was serious about getting municipalities to build they would just withhold federal infrastructure money um, based on growth targets for especially these high demand areas um they haven't really the trudeau government has has taken kind of a lukewarm approach to that um not there's not much teeth to it the conservative leader pierre polyev has been a little more aggressive where he said cities over 500,000 would be under some essentially some set of review where they have to meet a certain target or they don't get federal funds which is a lot for these big cities because they rely on the federal government to help build things like subways and major infrastructure and transit and road expansion and all of that um so either the federal government needs to be much more aggressive or the provincial government is going to have to pick up whatever slacks left behind and and put that pressure on the cities to to get this done yeah david clement consumer choice center uh all kinds of stuff he does writing and broadcasting wise you mentioned it we're seven years almost to the day seven years into justin trudeau now Mm -hmm. um i think we got a long track record here He's mm-hmm. got, you know, two years or so before he's up again. Where are we at with him? Is there Trudeau fatigue? Is there a bit of a rut that this administration seems to be in a little bit? They're past the COVID stuff now, but the economy's not doing super great. People seem a little, you know, they're not up in arms over it, but there is some discontent. Look, at some point, if you got a sports team, you've heard all the coaches' speeches, you've heard all the jokes, you've heard yeah. all the motivational stuff. It kind of feels like we're kind of at that point with Justin Trudeau now. We've seen kind of everything in his repertoire. What does he do here going forward, do you think? So under normal circumstances, I would say that, yeah, this is this, this would probably be the last go for Trudeau and that the Liberal, like if I was in the executive committee for the Liberal Party, I would be starting the process of, okay, when is he going to make an announcement that he's stepping aside? Uh, When are we going to have a a leadership race to kind of revamp party membership and and get things moving again? The liberal partisans, especially the ones on Twitter, hate it when I say this, Uh, but the liberal party in Canada very much mirrors what the Republican Party looked like under Trump, where 
I think they will stay on board until the ship has fully sunk. When that is, I do not know. Um, but just so much of the party is around one person um, and revolves around one person that there seems to be a reluctancy to move on. If if I was a liberal partisan, I would be one of the people who would be putting pressure on on the party to um, to pass the torch. Um, they have really good voter efficiency. Uh, so because we have a first-past-the-post system with multiple parties, the liberals do a very good job of winning competitive ridings with 31, 32, 35% of the vote. Um, the conservatives do not have as good uh, of, of voter efficiency as the liberals, and they're really the only other party who could form government. Um, so you can get 90% of the vote in Fort McMurray, um, but realistically, and this is no criticism to the fine people of Fort McMurray, um, every vote over that 50% mark is um, has no electoral advantage for the conservatives, which is why the conservatives have won the popular vote two elections in a row, um, but not formed government. Um, so some of that, I think, is is weighing on on maybe some of the reluctancy to start the retirement party for for trudeau uh, but i think it's it's necessary if i'm forecasting if we continue to see increases in crime in major cities and and some of it is hysteria but some of it is very real um, in the greater toronto area and vancouver and we start to see the recession kick in and people lose their jobs or uh, and, and things like that, or lose their homes as a combination of the two. Um, that is that is a ripe time for a conservative to come along, who is fiscally minded, who is maybe more of a law and order candidate, um, to attract the the middle centrist voters in in the suburbs, which is what the conservatives need. So, if I see that on the chessboard, you have to be having a conversation within the party if you're a liberal and say, okay, well, how do we counter this because there is the fatigue is only going to get worse the economic turmoil will most likely continue to get worse um, and the other factors at play here should um, mean that that the it, in theory it would be the conservatives election to lose um, but they are also notoriously good at losing elections that are theirs to lose so um, I'm not putting. Uh, I, I'm, I'm. I wouldn't take that statement to the bank. Yeah, David Clement. I. That's a universal principle. I think snatching yeah. victory from the you know jaws of defeat and then putting it right back down the gullet of defeat. Um, an interesting sideshow to some of that. One thing that affects all Canadians, of course, is Canada's national health care system. Mm -hmm. We we use it in America as a you know as both a mott and the Bailey for healthcare discussions, but you all actually have to live with it, deal with it, and handle it. Yep. Interesting crack in the system here. Doug Ford, the premier, of course, of Ontario, who's an interesting mm -hmm. character in his own right that you love to talk about. I do. Is having a little bit of a foray into privatized healthcare now. Trudeau's kind of really keeping an eye on this, and he's made some wide swath statements here. It's a small thing. It's a little thing. I don't know how much it'll amount to anything, but it is an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. We'll see how it pans out um, in terms of what it actually looks like in practice. But the idea 
is that we just have private service providers uh, or alleviating all of the backlogs that we see for a lot of the minor, somewhat minor surgeries and things like that, routine scans, MRIs, um, and and things that kind of fall into that category. And for American listeners, an example of like how severe it can be. Um, so it's anecdotal, but it's my own. This was before COVID. The, these problems in the healthcare system are not um, are not COVID specific. Um, they were exacerbated by COVID, but they've existed for a long time. I had to have a minor uh, sinus surgery. I think I went in. So from the time in which I first got referred from my doctor to the specialist was about six months. I went to the specialist and she said, okay, are you available for surgery? And she gave me a date. It was like March 2019. And that was eight months from when I saw the specialist. So we're talking well over a year total time from like the, the I have a problem that needs needs fixing to actually going under the knife. Um, now, for me, it was an inconvenience. It wasn't debilitating. Uh, but you have people who, let's say, don't have the luxury of working like I do um, remotely uh, and with, with, a, with a laptop. Let's say you, <laughs> you work outside, you, you build homes, you do all of those very important jobs, and you tear an MCL. You can't really afford to wait 9, 12 months for surgery. That's a, that needs to happen now. And so if we can get closer to those things happening now, it's going to be a huge benefit. And the way the Ford government is saying is there's no out-of-pocket expense. They're just billing the province. It's still single payer. Uh, these private uh, private clinics, doctors, et cetera, are just billing the province through your OHIP card, which is your provincial health card. Um, so when framed like that, I think it could be very good. How it, how it pans out on... Uh, the jury is still out, um, but if if we have more options to use our healthcare dollars essentially um, to get quicker service, that is a huge plus. David Clement joining us. The thing is, to the American audience, that's like, well, that's how it's supposed to work. Problem is, there's folks, especially certain uh, Canadian politicians, that think this is absolute heresy and have basically called it as much. I know our British friends joke about the National Health Service over there being the official state religion. I don't mm -hmm. think it's quite that bad in Canada, but some of the reaction here, you would think it certainly was, you know, calls for inquisition on why in the world are we putting this crack in the wall. It's a culture divide with a U.S. audience to why that would be so harsh to y'all. Yeah. But just kind of explain why that's such a throwback, because it goes back to those other things we're talking about. You know, who's controlling funding, providential government, federal government. There's a lot of layers to these sorts of things, isn't there? There are. And I think for the people who are up in arms about this, they view it as the Americanization of healthcare, which it is not. If anything, it's the Euro it's more of a European model. And Canadian politicians who want healthcare to be 
100% public, meaning from the, the insurance card that you have to the doctor that you go to, to the surgeon, to the literal building in which you have that surgery to be owned by the government. Um, this is, this, they're, they're up in arms and, and they think this is crazy. But if you look at your, they conveniently forget that Europe exists um, and that virtually every country, including the UK, um, has some sort of option to allow for private care to fill um, the void or fill the, the gaps where we have long wait and terrible care and all of that. So um, they always look at the US and they'll, they'll share like, oh, this woman gave birth and she got the bill and it was like 70 grand. Like, how is it working? Like, do we really want this in Ontario? It's like, well, no, that's not what that's not what anybody is advocating for. It's more of a shift towards what Europe does, which is a blend of the two. In many systems, you have single payer, but the hospital may be privately owned. The clinic may be privately owned. They build the province accordingly, or they build the build the state accordingly, and you get quicker um, quicker care. And for Canadians who really care about the universality, they can't separate. You, the fact that you can have universality without the government actually owning the hospital. <laughs> they think that it all has to be the same. Um, and that's just, it's just not true if you get the, the uh, horse blinders off and you take a look at how healthcare is run around the world. Yeah, David Coleman, Consumer Choice Center. Uh, for those of us that only periodically check in with Canada, either our neighbors or north or the worldwide audience, you know, look, we only got so much bandwidth and we got our own messes. Give us one or two things to be on the lookout for. I know we already talked about things like the economy and the housing and the healthcare stuff. What's one or two things to just kind of bookmark that may cut through on to more of the American or the international audience down the road a little bit, but we should bookmark it now like, hey, go ahead and kind of tab this one out because you're going to be hearing from it here down the road a little bit so i think crime is a big one because with now our sensitivity to crime is our bar for our sensitivity to crime is a lot lower than in the u.s and so i don't have the numbers on me but if i were to quote the numbers most american listeners would be like well it's that's like one twentieth of chicago that's not a that's not a crisis or a problem um, but we are seeing an increase, especially in the greater Toronto area, of random crime. Uh, there was one in Toronto where a group of I think five or six teenage girls beat a homeless man to death. Um, now, that's a headline, and it's anecdotal. But then you couple that with like an increase in things like carjackings, very violent, like in-your-face uh, crime. Um, and it starts to become something that is then a, a topic of discussion politically. Um, things like the re-release of violent offenders is another common one, where in many instances the, the criminal justice reform world gets lost. Um, and, I, and I say this because I'm definitely in the criminal justice reform world in terms of victimless crime. Uh, but I'm certainly not in regards to violent crime. And you'll have instances where people will be granted early release for a variety of reasons, overcrowding or, in air quotes, compassion. And then they reoffend in a violent way. 
um, as that continues to happen, it becomes campaign fodder for the conservatives. And so I think we'll see that become more of a talking point, um, not to the same extent, not to U.S. levels, but it will become a, a, a major conversation. Yeah, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center, been a friend of ours for since the beginning. I started doing broadcasting and writing, which I appreciate greatly, sir. I didn't throw you your softball about liquor in Canada. We'll talk about oh, yeah. that next time. But until we get you back on again, it won't be as long this time, I promise. Uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you, what you got going on, and follow you until we get you back on Hertel again. Yeah, so um, you can follow me on Twitter at Clement Liberty. Uh, the organization's website is consumerchoicecenter.org, uh, where we talk about uh, internationally basically how things impact consumers, everything from sin taxes to free trade to how do we handle uh, how do we handle companies like Huawei? Um, so lots, uh, lots of good uh, content there on the policy side, uh, both in the United States, Canada, and, and the rest of the world. Yeah, you do good work, sir. We always enjoy the conversation. David Clement, appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. tell let's end on a good note haven't done one of these in a while because we've been doing some interview heavy shows and i've had some other things going on uh stephen king good friend of this program one of the people that is instrumental in this program even existing for that matter encouraging me and getting me off the ground starting it he's been on the program before we need to get him back he has a great Substack newsletter called this is the way he used sci-fi especially things like star wars to talk philosophically about what's going on. It's a lot of positive stuff. It's real good life stuff. I always enjoy reading it. We will link to the full piece. This one hit kind of hard. I'm on Girl Dad too. I'm a Girl Dad too, so this one hit pretty hard. This is the way. It's called Changes Nature's Delight. Reading from Stephen Kent. This is a weird story. Somehow playing a violent video game ended, me, ended with me being trapped in the glass box of parental emotion. Last night, I was enjoying some me time in the living room playing Ghost Recon Wildlands. Now, that's a hot mess of a game. It's basically just Grand Theft Auto, but you're playing as a special forces operative fighting drug cartels in Bolivia. You can steal cars, leap from helicopters, stolen ones, or just race dirt bikes, also stolen, around the mountains. But then my 12-year-old daughter came downstairs. She doesn't care much for video games. And this one isn't quite appropriate, given all the violence and petty theft, and there's also plenty of bad language blurted out by your character every time you crash a car or interact with one of the environments. Normally, I just turn it off, but at this moment, I could tell my child wanted to sit with me and just do something, so I decided to share what I was doing. I started by going to settings and changing the language from English to Spanish. That way, neither one of us could understand the crudeness expletives that were being emitted by the game. Then I looked at her and said, you want to dive out of a helicopter? Yes, she answered immediately, and the game was on. After I hooked her up with a peacefully commandeered helicopter to fly around the badlands of Bolivia, I couldn't help but notice how different my little girl is from even just a year ago. As she's flying the helicopter around and exploring the vast world, de delighting in spending some time with me, I started paying attention to her mannerisms and vocabulary. She was using expressions I'd heard but never really heard her use before. A few weird slang terms, but I'm unfamiliar with and a newfound dark sense of humor. I'm just vibing, she says, while parachuting into a mountain range. 
I couldn't help but laugh. Where did she pick that expression up? Because it sure wasn't us. Looking at her next to me, she's wearing jeans, a baggy t-shirt, and a jacket. For three long years, my daughter had been wearing exclusively khaki clothes in honor of her hero, Steve Irwin, and his daughter, Bindi. We called her the khaki kid because she literally only sports a Dickies khaki button-down shirt, tan shirt, and pants. Three years is a long time to have a singular fashion choice, and it suddenly ended around Thanksgiving 2022. Not sure when, why, or how that happened. It just did. She added camouflage pants to the rotation slowly at first, and then all the time. No more khaki. Wasn't until Christmas I noticed it was camo everything. Camo pants, camo top, camo headband. Khaki kid might be gone. A parent notices these things and quietly mourns. Looking at the kid next to me goofing off with Ghost Recon, a young girl with more defined features, a full set of teeth, and a few skin blemishes, I had this moment of clarity about the inevitability of change. For nearly a year, I had felt myself fretting about my daughter's coming of age and beginning her teen years. She's a bit of a daddy's girl, and I don't want to lose her, and God, that hurts. My fear about the moral bankruptcy of our culture, the stability of the world, my distrust of public institutions to teach truth have manifested themselves at times in bursts of anger. My fear has led to those moments of anger, as I know, fear of loss, fear of change, fear of my daughter changing, and the change can only be bad, right? We protect the innocent and wonder of the khaki kid. We did our job in that period of her life. Losing that particular version of her will always evoke a sadness. My own mother said that when she dreams of her three children, we appear in her dreams still at the ages of the five to ten range. We were all in our thirties today. This is the way of life, and you can only dwell on the pain of one chapter ending. You will miss the chapter you are currently in. Sitting next to this girl who dresses different and talks different than my girl just one year ago, I felt sad. Then something weird happened. I actually chose to smile and chose joy. This is my girl, and I'm her dad. But even that is something we symbolically allow to change when girls marry and their father walks them down the aisle to, quote, give them away. Far from being some dated symbol of patriarchy, it is one of the most pure rituals we have for confronting the inevitability of change in our relationship with our kids. They'll always be yours, in quotes, but you still have to give them up, also in quotes, to their passions, their dreams, their true loves. To do anything else would be to covet and cling jealously. It's over-attachment. I love my daughter, and I will do so in all her phases, operating systems, and versions like Anakin Skywalker. I don't want things to change, but they will, and I will not be remembered for fighting a setting sun. I want to be remembered for smiling throughout. Welcome, the camo kid. This is the way. It's from Stephen Kent with a nice touch. Highly recommend his newsletter. We need to get Stephen on the program. Uh, again, we wouldn't even have this program without his influence and mentorship and i thank him that'll do it for herd tell uh we'd love to hear from you herd tell show at the gmail.com or tell show on the twitter you can interact with us that way make sure you're following us we get all the updates on all the shows and good talks and everything else going on social media is the only way we advertise it so you can do us a favor and advertise us on your own social media we'd sure appreciate it. especially you facebook people because i don't have facebook uh, or any other platform you want to put us on. We'd sure appreciate it. Make sure you're following us, all the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever. YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe there. Lots of good extra stuff that only the YouTube channel gets. Podcasters, you get the Twice on Sunday recap. Only you get that. See, you need to sign up for both. That way you don't miss anything. So, till we talk to you again, we hope wherever you are, across the street or around the world, you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad. With Chime Checking Account, features like fee free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.